Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK Magazine and JCK Online. Today's special episode is in honor of JCK Magazine's 150th anniversary. JCK's Rob Bates and Victoria Gamalski will talk with a panel of JCK writers about fascinating discoveries from their research in the JCK archives. Then they will interview Bill Furman. Welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and JCK Online. If you've checked your mail and you've had a chance to read through our latest issue, the September-October issue, you know it was our grand homage to our sesquicentennial, I hope I said that right, our 150th anniversary um, the issue came out in late September, so we've had it out for about a month, and we're really proud of it. It was a lot of work, and it definitely shows it's a fantastic product. You had a lot of cool features in there, and everybody here contributed so much to this. Really, you know, what we hope will be a keepsake, something that, I mean, Mark Smelzer, our publisher, mentioned it offhand to somebody while I was in the room, and he basically said, you know, if if this was something I could have gotten when I first started out in this industry, someone just said, here, go sit in a corner and read this for the next few hours. What a great education it would have given somebody sort of brand new because what we tried to do was really go back through our history and pull together some of the themes that connect all our issues, connect all our years of coverage and what are the topics that have come up time and again and revisit them, review them, timelines, sort of historical perspectives. And so it is really what I feel to be like a great introduction to the industry and also a great review of it for people who have spent decades in it. A lot of great pictures, too. Yeah. Just to to be focused on one industry for so long and to keep having so much to say about it and to kind of having to reinvent ourselves into different formats and, you know, from weekly to monthly to now daily to uh, now in this audio form, you, you, you see exactly how every generation has dealt with all the different challenges and all the different changes in formats. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's an amazing and it's, it's a really cool legacy and it's a really cool history. I mean, as we've discussed, not a lot of publications are this old and have had shown this durability. It's a, it's a nice little milestone. Quite. I mean, it's like the 150-year-old magazine most people have never heard of. Right, yeah. You know? It's not, uh, it doesn't really top the list of 150-year-old magazines, but, you know, it's a, it's a lovely little milestone, especially with all the challenges in publishing and all the things that we've, we all know and we all hear about. To have this kind of longevity is, uh, is pretty cool. I'd like to kick things off just by talking about some of the things that stuck with me, either because they're weird or because they are just really cool. Um, and one of the things that really I note in my editor's letter for the issue, but bears repeating, is that we are based now at One World Trade Center, and we are literally seven minutes walk from JCK's very first office, which was located at 229 Broadway. It was the office of the American Horological Journal then, and that was a building that no longer exists because it was... Uh, subsumed or knocked down by the Woolworth Building, which is a famous example of early 20th century architecture. And so Melissa and I took a walk there back in June and stood on the corner and kind of, it was just an amazing thing to feel like we're that close to where we started. Even though that building is no longer there, there's still this this vibe of lower Manhattan, which is a very bustling place now and and really was 150 years ago. And the, the industry started 
right around Maiden Lane. And for years, JCK and its predecessors, I should say, Julius Circular, really orbited Maiden Lane. We I don't know if we ever had an office on Maiden Lane. It's possible. But we had offices at, uh, our second office was at 269 Pearl Street. Then we moved to 42 Nassau. 189 Broadway, 11 John, and all those places are right near Maiden Lane, which was, of course, where everybody was based, every diamond dealer, every, you know, watch part maker. It it was the district. And if you walk there now, which, like I said, I did a couple months ago with Melissa and then on my own, the first office of the Jewelers Circular at 269 Pearl is now a giant senior center. So that has an address on Fulton. It's not the address that we existed at d- doesn't exist anymore. Um, then the, another address where we were at is now the Federal Reserve. So it's actually this remarkable part of town that has so many institutions on it that once were filled with jeweler shops. And the fact that we're still so close is just a remarkable full circle story. And I think it just goes to show that, you know, you can go 50, 150 years and really still be in the exact same place, which, I, again, what Rob just said about how long we've endured, you know, how long this industry's endured and how we all still circle the same exact streets. And one thing that, first of all, everybody will say, what does JCK mean? And it's the combination of Jeweler Circular, which is one publication, and Keystone and for a long time it was called Jewelers for Gold Keystone, and now we just call it JCK. Um, but how many publications kind of were subsumed along the way? Because there was the Horological Review, I believe, and then there was Jewelers Weekly. So in a way, this is like, it's not just one publication. It's kind of like the surviving vestige of like, I oh. think like five or six, right? Or or even more, possibly. At least it's it's a little bit hard to count, and we did try to do justice to this timeline in the prologue section of our issue on page 50, you can see of the magazine. There was a publication called The Watchmaker and Jeweler, founded in 1869, then another one called The Jeweler, 1872, and then the American Watchmakers, Jewelers, and Silversmiths Journal, 1872, all were eventually absorbed by the Jeweler's Circular which then went on to become the Jewelers Circular and Horological Review, the Jewelers Weekly, the Keystone, the Keystone Weekly. There were really, like, it was a hotbed of publishing down here. And really, the Jewelers Circular was the only one that really triumphed. And by the 30s, when it merged with the Keystone, it became the Jewelers Circular Keystone and went on to, you know, still have rivals in the trade, but it's by far the only one that's lasted. It's been Jewelers Circular Keystone, or JCK for, so that's nearly 100 years. Since 1935. Again, you can find this timeline. It is a rather confusing one because it's not a straight up one year they acquired this magazine and became this. It was really a lot of magazines that folded and were kind of their, you know, their subscriber list, their advertisers were folded into the pages of our magazine. And we've changed names numerous times. And in the issue, we tried to be faithful to that. So when we pulled quotes from old issues, we tried to make sure we cited the specific issue that it came from, whether it was the Jewelers Weekly or the Jewelers Review, whatever our name was at the time. So we tried to be as accurate as we could. And now, because I was, I was actually once chastised for this a little while back, that we don't, we don't even use Jewelers Circular Keystone at all. We should, we just use JCK, I believe. We don't use Jewelers Circular Keystone. Well, right around 1990, there was a little inconsistent, but um, January of 90 is when JCK was the first time appeared on the cover. 
So there was no longer a mention. And I mean, I think we'll all agree it's a really cumbersome title. I mean, it, and it's most people would find it very confusing. What is a circular? I think it's that old timey word for a newsletter that nobody uses anymore. And I'm sure a Gen Zer would look at us like, huh? They don't know what a magazine is. So I would assume they, they don't know what a circular is. Right. So um, we've, we've lasted. We've definitely lasted. So we've had this thing, 150 voices, 150 years, and we've gotten a lot of great feedback. This is one of my favorites uh, from Marty Hurwitz of MVI Marketing. JCK is like the wise and wealthy aunt who shows up for Passover, having traveled the world. She doesn't have to say a lot, but when she speaks, everyone listens. She is class personified, and all of the young look up to her and emulate her. All the grown-ups continue to interact with her, as they have for years, to find new strategy and direction. So obviously, Marty has much saner relatives than, than I do, apparently. But um, it says, JCK is a feminine spirit, a feminine spirit guide for the jewelry industry and the many people who make their careers in the business. JCK is zen. Do you feel zen? Was that, was that yeah. Marty too? Marty said oh that. JCK is zen. Marty. I love it. I'm not feeling that zen, but that's okay. <laughs> and uh, the other one was uh, Peggy Jo Donahue, who is a former editor here, reprinted the job ad that she answered. And she said, top award-winning trade magazine specializing in precious materials, wants one very good person, qualifications, much talent, proven professional writing ability, curiosity about why people do what they do, which I, I think we all agree that's really important, mm -hmm. tough and determined reporter, working knowledge of people diplomacy, open to new ideas and challenges, widely read and possessor of an interesting education. So there you go. She you was perfect. Yeah. So, and that's a great description, you know? Yeah. When we were looking at weird stories that came up, a lot of people kind of fixated on this story from June 1975 called Should You Fire That Hippie? Which, you know, I can't imagine what the what the pitch meeting was for that. Like, hey, you know, maybe you think people are firing hippies? or um... So it says, long hair on men, blue jeans on women, and too wild a night can still cost employees their jobs, but the management decision isn't easy. So... We all thought this would be a really a stupid story, and it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a little dated, but it's not, it's not terrible. It's, it says, the youth rebellion of the 60s has mellowed. It has permanently changed the look of many jewelry stores, once considered along with banks as the very bastions of respectability, mod clothes, long hair, new private lifestyles may shock many older jewelers. So these are the baby boomers, right? These are the people who are now like 70 years old right now and 60. You have people who are interviewed who are saying that they like this more casual atmosphere. And one says, I don't like the sterile, snobbish, exaggerated reverence in some stores. That's what one of the consumers that we spoke to said. And what's interesting is that you still hear that complaint, even though we're talking about the baby boomers are supposed to bring a breath of fresh air, you still hear the complaint that a lot of jewelry stores are sterile and snobbish. So uh, maybe the millennials, people are like, oh, those millennials, you know, they hear, they're such snobs. So basically, the story ends with somebody saying, eventually, we'll probably all get around to realizing that only one thing really counts, results. It's easier to fire someone 
It's a lot harder to replace uh, a salesperson that does a good job, even if you hate his personal habits. So there you go. So I think I think basically don't fire that hippie. I think that keep, keep the hippie. That's the upshot. I mean, yeah, we love the hippie. I mean, I think it just sort of pre sort of foreshadows the casual Fridays casualization of America yes. that we've obviously are have been seeing and dealing with for at least a decade. So yeah, it's not a you're right, not as a silly an article as we all thought just based on fire that hippie that that yeah. that headline really Especially caught us. Especially since the JCK staff was pretty scruffy in 1975. Yeah. I mean, you can see <laughs> pictures of them. Exactly. It's not like uh clean-cut people there, so. Right. Hello, Rob, and hello to all the JCK podcast listeners, and happy 150th anniversary to JCK. This is Hedda Shupak here. I joined JCK in January 1986, and I was there till May 2009. So what was the best thing I covered at JCK? What was my favorite story? Rob asked both. So being an editor, let's clarify. There's a story as in one you write, and then there's a story as in one you tell. So in terms of issues that I covered as an editor, my favorites always were the ones that focused on consumer behavior, fashion, trends, merchandising, etc. I had minored in fashion design in college, so that was always an interest. I can't draw, which is why I'm not a fashion designer, but since I could write well, one of my professors suggested that I enter the industry that way. Years ago, also, Russ Shore and I won a Neil for a story about store design, as interior design also fascinated me. But I always was, and I continue to be passionate about the importance of selling jewelry to women. If I may pat myself on the back for a moment, if you go back and read any of my old editorials from the early aughts, or even before that, You'll see that everything we as an industry are dealing with now was in those editorials. So now my favorite story to tell. There are so many. One of the best probably has to be around the launch of the JCK show, initially called Jewelry 92. The first was Jewelry 92. Obviously, it was in 1992, then Jewelry 93, Jewelry 94, and we suddenly realized we were buying new banners and new carpets every year, and that was pretty silly. That's when it became the JCK show. I digress. So we had decided to launch a show, but we still hadn't figured out where. Now, during an editorial meeting, George Holmes was bringing the editorial team up to speed, and he told us that Las Vegas was the leading contender for location. Las Vegas, I said. We can't have a show in Las Vegas. There's no jewelry industry there. There's no jewelry industry in Basel, Switzerland either, replied George in his droll manner. Any of you who remember him can probably imagine him saying that. Touché. So fast forward to the first Las Vegas show, Jewelry 92, where the University of Nevada at Las Vegas marching band opened the ceremonies on the first day. What they chose to play was John Philip Sousa's Liberty Bell March, better known to the world as the Monty Python theme song. If you ever come across the video of that day, which is available on VHS, you will hear the Monty Python raspberry blown at the appropriate moment courtesy of Russ Shore and me standing behind the ceremonial red ribbon with the rest of the JCK staff. We've got a whole crew here for you in the studio. We've got our entire editorial team, well, 
almost entirely here in the studio. We've got managing editor Melissa Bernardo, senior editor Emily Vesseland, and contributing writer and all that glitters blogger Amy Elliott are here in the studio with us. And calling in from D.C. is our longtime contributor, Brittany Simonitz. Well, so we've got a f- we've got all kinds of perspectives here. Melissa, what did you find when you were looking through these archives? We found a lot of really cool and gorgeous and also super wacky covers when we were going through the archives. And if you go through the magazine, you'll see we tried to include as many as possible. We have a great collage on the inside cover, but we also inserted them all throughout the magazine. You'll notice that Every feature has a little postage stamp size cover on top that kind of relates to it subject-wise, just because we wanted to include as many as possible. Decade-wise, we sort of noticed trends, and I think Vic can speak to this too. (laughs) The 60s were probably the kookiest. I mean, unsettling (laughs) might be a word I'd use. Graphic-wise, that's where um, we found the Flying Santas. And there, there were a lot of weird graphics. They should have fired the hippies, I think. <laughs> yeah. There was, there was definitely somebody I, was smoking something, yeah. I think. Yeah. The 70s actually had a lot of really great covers, like really gorgeous models, close-ups, great statement jewelry. Lots of feathered hair. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. That's also where they have the chimpanzee holding the watch, though. So it, it, they weren't all winners. But the 70s also had the best ads we found. We could have done, we did that whole ad retrospective feature. We could have done them all like with ad from the 70s, the 20s and the 70s, I think. Very groovy. So I think we just loved sort of doing that flashback. And I think people love seeing that stuff. And where was the logo? The logo was all over the place. The logo was up the side, up the left side. And once it was up the right side, like, who puts a logo up the right side of the magazine vertically? I think they did that once, and then they realized, like, that's really stupid. We're never doing that again. It, it was kind of crazy. All the changing fonts, all the changing colors. It was, it was super fun. They were fun, and they definitely had characters. There were, you could tell there was an art director and when there was a change in art direction. Yeah, and the 80s were also... I, you know, I we look at photos of ourselves from the '80s, and and we think, oh, kind of what what were we thinking? The hair, the the bangs, the we all kind of have that. Oh, what were we thinking? And and we had a lot of those in the '80s. Mm-hmm. That's where we had that scary doll cover, <laughs> and I'm I'm still trying to recover from that one. The the doll, she had those dead eyes. It seems at some point. They were cartoon covers, and then they kind of changed to photograph covers. Which is—is is that pretty much correct? I'd say they were photograph covers, and then it there was a phase of cartoon covers. Yeah, they were very graphic, like in the late fifties and sixties, and then the eighties had some a fair amount of cartoons. I'm not sure what that was about. Because the 30s had some lovely photographs, you and, know, so it wasn't like... Yeah, oh, really wow. beautiful paintings and illustrations, mm-hmm. like, that that you could frame and put on your wall. They were gorgeous. Yeah, some really deco-inspired covers. I mean, the covers did feel of their time. The 60s were by far the weirdest. I guess that makes sense, right? I mean, of all the decades that <laughs> sort of things started to go a little haywire, I suppose it was the 60s. 
talk about our the cover of the 150th anniversary issue, which was really quite a production. It it really was. We we decided we wanted to represent 150 years worth of jewelry, which was a tall order. It was actually pretty exciting because we got to photograph a lot of jewelry we wouldn't normally photograph. So we got to hunt down a lot of vintage jewelry and a lot of places, Maclow Gallery, Wilson's Estate Jewelry lent us a bunch of pieces, Fred Layton, Bulgari, Verdura, David Webb. I mean, all these kind of vintage, this Charles Laloma bracelet from the 80s. I, it's, it's really fun kind of spotting. And if you look at the cover and if you look at the pieces on the inside where we where we have all the credits and just see all the different styles and the evolution of all the different styles, it's really kind of amazing to see. How many pieces are on the cover? 21, I believe. Wow. It's got to be a record. I think so. And the, the background of the 150 are paper flowers. And then there are real flowers kind of scattered throughout. And it was photographed by Kenji Toma, who's uh, who's done a cover for us before. It's pretty spectacular. We're pretty proud of it. Emily, what did you find when you dug through the archives? You did a couple of great fashion features for us uh, and designer, uh, sort of a look back at the birth of the independent designer. So, yeah, let's hear it. So for that, I read through every issue from the 70s and 80s. Not every word, but every single piece of fashion coverage from those two decades. You're kidding. No, which was, I think, two and a half days. And I came home with a camera completely packed. It was something like 700 photographs of pages (laughs) from the magazine. Well done. That's Um, amazing. it It was overkill. I probably didn't need to do that much. But through that, the magazine has had a lot of really great fashion editors throughout the decades. But I totally fell in love with the writing of Jerry Gewertz, who was a very, um, who was a longtime and prominent fashion editor for JCK. She helped lay the groundwork for the Women's Jewelry Association. She was actually its first president. I was so curious about her that I touched base with Jenny Luker, who is the current president of Women's Jewelry Association. And I said, did you know her? And she said, no, but there are people in the organization who, who knew her very well. So I ended up speaking with Linda Orlick, who is a jewelry veteran and who was one of Jerry's best friends. And if I could read this quote from her, I just love this. She was, you know, gushing about her because she was a fantastic person inside the office and out. She said she always engaged the industry. She would walk around the JA show and everybody would grab her asking, Jerry, what do you think of this? She really built so many careers before anyone else even thought about doing it. She was always giving. She had the most open and loving desire to see people succeed. And she had a zest for life like no other. So that was Linda Orlick on Jerry Gewertz. And if I could, because I had I read so much of her work, she sort of had a um, like a Deanna Vreeland way of positing the trends that she spotted, where it was sort of like, why don't you wear this? And why don't you take a look at this? And then sometimes pretty commanding, like, you need to look at this. Why, as a jewelry retailer, do you not have this? So it was fun because she really was an authority. And Linda and I were speaking about her and talking about how 
Nobody wrote about jewelry like that before she did. She was really a pioneer when it came to talking about jewelry as something that had trends and that ebbed and flowed with the fashion trends, which was cool. But let me read you from the fashion mix. This is from the 70s. This is um, Jerry Gewertz. Name designers used gemstones to create lively, refreshing, precious jewelry. They refused to be limited, even in use of precious metals, which until now decided what was precious. Quick fashion changes add to the confusion. Crystal was tops in September, ivory in November, snake in December, diamonds on wood in January. Then came Matisse in February and North American Indians in April. The jeweler can't pace his buying to a weekly or monthly fashion cycle, but he must keep in step with seasonal fashion tides. And some styles give promise of coming importance. She's just wow, a badass. Amazing. <laughs> so she, she was a badass. She was. So I mean, there were so many. Um, Etta Gale uh, Loray. I hope I'm saying her name correct. She correctly. She was fantastic too. But I just really I dove into Jerry's work and and was really excited to discover it. She seems like a cool lady. She was. She I guess used to host the the initial WJA meetings. And Linda was saying she would all she would feed us all at her fabulous apartment. She has three kids who I guess are all fantastic human beings too. So really happy to to get to know her and her work. Well, I loved your your two features that you did where you quoted both Etta Gale and and Jerry. The uh, one feature was the elements of style and it's sort of a look at by the decade what the reigning trends were in jewelry and then call them by their names, uh, a look at the birth of the independent designer. So, Emily, you did a fantastic job, and it was so so wonderful to read those choice quotes you found. Cool. Thanks. Hi, this is Edigail Blower. I started at JCK sometime around 1971. I was there for 11 years. For most of the time, I was known as the New York editor. I think one of my favorite things about covering stories for the magazine was an interview I did with Lazar Kaplan, the Lazar Kaplan, on his 90th birthday. He told me about cutting the Yonka diamond and how they had to make special tools because it was so large. The current tools just could not cope with it. It was really like being with history. I enjoyed that enormously. I'm Russell Shore, and I was with JCK for 19 years, from 1980 to 1999. I started as an associate editor covering gold and investments, and later became editor of New York Diamonds by the time that I left the magazine. In 1984, I went to India We were the first ones to go to India where diamond production had really started to take off. And I went to Surat, which very few Westerners had visited at the time. And it was really, really eye-opening to to see how diamonds were produced there then. You know, a lot of it at that time was hand labor and really eye-opening. And the article which ran that year got a lot of traction from from the industry. A lot of people didn't know it and really also gave us a lot of solid contacts in, in India, which we later parlayed into uh, advertising revenue. If 
If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews is what helps make them possible. Help spread the word. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. And now back to the show. Amy, I'd love to hear what you found. Well, we've talked about the process of researching in the archives. And so you would go through these giant volumes. Often, well, for my part, I was looking for something very specific to um, write my stories, which were very fact-driven and fact-based milestones in history for the pearl industry, et cetera. When did we start traveling abroad to find um, our gemstones? So what would happen, though, is you'd be looking for something very specific and then something unrelated to the research that you were tasked with doing would just, would just present itself to you. So a really great example of that is I'm combing through, you know, six months of, you know, 1962, let's say. Um, actually, it was March 1963. And just out of the blue, this article about the advent of a new, innovative diamond cut, and that cut was called the princess cut. And that was just, it, it didn't end up making it into any of the stories that I or, or my colleagues were working on, but just the fact that we were there, like that moment was documented in the pages of JCK, just gave me chills. I was very, very excited to see that and thought, well, wow, this is, um, we really were there documenting every important discovery and innovation in the jewelry world. The reverse of that is that I was looking for something specific to Breakfast at Tiffany's, which came out in 1961, I believe. This was for the Pearl story, which we now know Breakfast at Tiffany's was a huge moment for ropes upon ropes of pearls with giant diamond clasps from that iconic first scene of Audrey Hepburn looking in the window at Tiffany's. And so I was like, what did we write about it? Did we know, did we have... The, the foresight, did we know that this was going to be a cultural icon unto itself, not just Audrey, but the movie? I really was like, let me see if we have any coverage on this. And sure enough, we did. It was just a very small item. It wasn't like, you know, this movie's going to change history. But it was a report on the fact that there were movie cameras allowed on the floor in Tiffany that they shot actual scenes from this best-selling novella by Truman Capote in the store. And that was kind of the thrust of it, like, big movie cameras on set at Tiffany. And that was our little item on it. And it was just so, again, thrilling to look back from the present day and realize that, you know, we didn't know it then, what impact it would have on jewelry and jewelry trends. You know, we didn't know then what we know now. And that was just a really superb and precious moment for me. So cool. And and I should also say that Amy did a really wonderful job on pulling together some of the more complicated topics that we covered in the issue, which is just how this business has become so globalized and so ethnically diverse and sort of the underpinnings of these phenomenon, how she she really tracked them down and did a great job. One feature is called We Are the World, and then a sort of a sidebar, lengthy sidebar to it is Once Upon a Time in America. So when you see the issue and you look through kudos to Amy for pulling together some some really interesting but complicated topics. And then last but not least, we want to hear from our call-in editor, Brittany, who's based in D.C. Britt worked on an epilogue where she talked to a lot of young people in the industry. What did you, what did you ask them, Britt? Yeah. Um, well, first, I just want to add that, Rob, I 
uh, Marty Hurwitz was my absolute favorite JCK 150th. <laughs> the entire interview is published online for anyone that wants to go read it because it's hilarious and very informative. But for the epilogue, I asked a lot of questions about we wanted to know what people see the industry being in 50 years. And I don't think that anybody would be surprised to hear that sustainability is top of mind for a lot of young people, people who hope to be around in 50 years, people who hope to still be in the industry. But what I found more interesting, because I I would hope that in 50 years, sustainability is not so much an issue as the norm. So some of the more out there, I asked people to make their most, you know, out there prediction. And one that I thought was pretty funny from Carolyn Tamkel of Bella Twal, she talks about news being uploaded straight to your brain. So JCK Magazine coming right to you, you know, no print required, just coming over the brainwaves. And then this one from the founder of PSFK, Piers Fox, the quote says, by 2069, jewelry will be able to transport you to a different experience. Just pop on the ring, strap on the watch, or clasp the necklace. And if you opted in, you'll be shifted to another place in your mind that you won't be able to distinguish from reality. And and his wasn't the only sort of out there prediction like that. We had a few that weren't printed, like jewelry showcasing your mood or jewelry changing into exactly what do you want what you want it to be when you think about it. And so all these kind of things that, you know, jewelry will be syncing with your brain and sort of this chameleonic attributes to it. So, you know, I guess we'll have to wait 50 years to see if it happens. <laughs> but I thought those predictions were really interesting. <laughs> or 20, yeah, or 10, who knows? 10. You know, it's, yeah. <laughs> those were great. You did a great job of pulling together. And there were, there was quite a variety of perspectives. So, But it was fun to read the really outlandish ones. And yeah, we have, we have seen things where jewelry morphs into different pieces. And, you know, certainly with a smartwatch, you can have different faces. So... Some of that's coming true to some extent. Yeah, I mean, outlandish is is relative, right? I mean, some of that is is here. I started at JCK in June of 2004, and my title since then has been publisher. My best experience in my time in the magazine, I mean, it's so cliche, but it's it's truly impossible to, to name one. There have been so many phenomenal things that have occurred since I've been on board. Accomplishments with the ad sales, with creativity, with new ways of advertising. There've been so many great events and dinners and moments our business travel can be grueling and it's hard to be away from family, but we've had some really fun, unusual moments in very far-flung places that I will always treasure. The category that I've enjoyed the most, though, since being at JCK has been the friendships that I've made and the acquaintances and business friendships and personal friendships that I've made in this industry in the last 15 years. Hello, my name is Robert Weldon. For me, the most important thing that I covered when I was a reporter at JCK was a pretty extensive story on East African gemstones. And it took me to Africa. It was a magnificent experience. And it is one which has actually stayed with me till my present day. My love for Africa and East African gems, the people of Africa, has never left me. And uh, so I'd say it's the most important story in my life that I had written while I was at JCK. 
JCK did influence me uh, as a person because it taught me how to think critically about a number of different issues. It also taught me how to write in a manner that was careful. I felt that the right words were absolutely essential to not only paint a story, but to be accurate about what you were trying to convey. And that has stayed with me over the years as well. All right, we are very pleased to have uh, with us today in the studio <laughs> a legendary legend of the uh, jewelry industry and of the JCK family. He uh, was the, the sales director? Sales correct? director. Sales yes. director for, and, and the food editor, which we'll, we'll talk about in a, in a second. But he, okay. you, were the, you were the sales director for how So how long did you work for JCK? I worked for JCK for 46 years. 46 years, right. So if you think... It's 150 years. You're like nearly, nearly a third of that was, was Bill. Yeah. Well, Bill centered. It, it was the most incredible time of my life. Bill Furman, if it hasn't become clear oh, sorry, to yes, the I, entire I not world. Given, I have not given your name, uh, Mr. Uh, Bill Furman. But I prefer Billy. Billy Furman. Okay. Exactly. 46 years. That's, that's amazing. Is that, that's not a record, is it? Were there people there who were, who were there longer, who've been I at JCK longer? I don't think there was anybody else that was there longer at the time. Yeah. There was an editor way back in 1903 who I ser think served for 35 years. Um, that's, that's not 46. But it's no, not 46. That's not 46. Precisely, you, you my point. You guys make me feel wonderful, like, a, <laughs> like an intelligent dinosaur. So, <laughs> obviously, when you started, you were, you told me you were a teacher. Right. Well, I, I got out of college in uh, 69, and I taught, I didn't teach for noble reasons, to be honest with you. I taught because I didn't want to go to Vietnam. It was the best alternative to, to not going to Vietnam. What year was this exactly? June of 69. And I had got my induction notice to go to Nam, and of course my father said, my stepfather said, you know, I'll make a man out of you and you got to go. And uh, I went the other direction. Teachers were exempt? I didn't know that. Teachers were exempt for two years, I believe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was a crazy time. My first year, I taught sixth grade in a Catholic school in Brooklyn, St. Mary, Mother wow. of Jesus. And that's kind of a, a kick in the head because I, I'm a Jew. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I had a wonderful, I mean, they were so good to me, the people there. So you did that for how many years? I did that for two years. Well, I taught there for a year. And I got the whopping salary of $5,800 a year. Mm -hmm. And then I, I had to find a job where I could make more money. Because all the women I, I would ask out <laughs> who were dating would say, I don't have the money to take out. <laughs> or we'll have to go Dutch, whatever. And so, so how did you find out about JCK, get involved with JCK? I started looking at the classifieds. And then I went to a head, headhunter. And the headhunter said you should be selling advertising. I said, I want to, I want to write advertising. He said, you're not going to get paid to write advertising. You don't have a track record. So he introduced me to two or three publications, and the one that was strikingly attractive. You always struck me as obviously a very outgoing person, a very upbeat person. You have what I would consider a quote-unquote salesperson's personality. Would you Agree with that, or I, I'm just a total extrovert. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm, out, I'm out of my mind most of the and time. And 
did they and you didn't have any real sales experience before you started, right? But no. did they kind of recognize that or did you kind of something that you kind of just took to very quickly or Well, they it's funny you bring that up because every time I went on an interview they said, "Well, you you're just a teacher. What what could you do? You know, you you've never sold anything." And then I I of course turned it around and said that, "Well, I sold these kids an education." And oh, I I neglected to tell you that I a student taught uh, the summer of 69 and went to St. Francis College, and I'd student taught in Bedford-Stuyvesant, and that was quite an experience, and it really opened up my eyes to what the world was, because I had, you know, I had, had uh, never been exposed to, to the, it was a crazy place. I'm so glad that I did teach there, because it, it just gave me a different perspective. And, and you didn't know jewelry, I assume? You had no I, idea about no, jewelry? No, I had no idea about jewelry, absolutely, and the only thing I knew was that Women loved it, you know? <laughs> and, and when I told them I was selling for a, a magazine that was to the jewelry industry, they were enthralled, you know? And Were you single at the time? Oh, yeah. I was single for, for six years. I didn't get married until I was 29. Okay. I, I was independent, living in my own apartment in New York, and um, having a blast. Did immediately, you know, because the jewelry industry is a very kind of very specific industry. It's a lot of small businesses. It's a lot of characters, a lot of big personalities, a lot of entrepreneurs. Was that something you kind of took to immediately? Oh, absolutely. It was, it was, as a matter of fact, the jewelry industry was also down in Canal Street and Maiden Lane and, and on, and Fulton. And it hadn't really, I mean, I was going down there, but I was also going to 47th Street. But so I divided my time between there and I, I, I love to throw myself into a conversation with people I don't know. That really worked out well for me. <laughs> and what was the, 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 the vibe of the magazine? What kind of people was it? What, like, like, what was like the, the kind of prevailing thought about how the business should run? We were the conservative, super ultra conservative book at the time. And they called it the Bible of the industry. But to my way of thinking, that was even outdated then. Even, it was, you know, today it's considered the, the industry authority. But to call it the Bible of the industry was too conservative. And we were up against National Jeweler. National Jeweler and Modern Jeweler. Some wonderful people that were competitors. But it was a very tough, we charged the most. We demanded the most of, in terms of integrity. And I mean, even George Holmes, I remember going into his office when I had the opportunity to go down to Pennsylvania and I would say, George, I got this great guy's coming out with a new, the Huseman diamond. It's, it's got so many more uh, facets and I, can we do a story on him? He said, no, we don't operate that way. We only operate with integrity and that's all self-serving. I have to say it. The other magazines were doing incredible I guess you'd call them puff articles. And designers weren't that important at the time. The first designer that came out that was really important was Jose Hess. And you remember that? Oh, yeah, because the, the ad that was designed was, it's breathtaking, must be Jose Hess. Was that his tagline? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, and, and, and there were two or three people that, that, were, that were billed themselves as designers. But, the, but he was the first, one of the first. And the other person that was so amazing was uh, Maurice Shire. Uh, I say that because he, nobody promoted emeralds or loose stones at the time, but we were able to sell 
Marie Shire into a program that that put emeralds way way up in terms of consciousness of the of the jewelers and and this and the trade and the consumers too one of the things i i've i've heard about selling at jck and i think actually something that mark smelzer our, our publisher has has told me is that you know you work for like a big magazine like some of the magazines like vanity fair or that that you're you know you're dealing it you're basically dealing with the ad agency and it's kind of schmoozing and going to lunch you sell for jck you're basically telling some guy who owns his own business to invest yeah that his was his own a, money and that's it's much harder that was that was a great thing about jck cuz you actually got to speak to the people who were the owners and they made the decisions. Let's back up for a moment. I started selling for Rand McNally, the trade guide, and that was calling on the big agencies like uh, Royal Dane and J. Walter Thompson and so on. And then we were selling at the same time. I was, had both responsibilities. But I love the fact that you go in and you sit down and talk to manufacturers who had taken their last buck and planted down. And the people who were the ad agencies were Ed Coyne. Ed Coyne was uh, a real, a strong influence in my life and a strong mentor. And he designed most of the advertising for all these people. And he had some great people working with him. Jay Lazar, Andy Kohler, et cetera. So, uh, and a lot of the, probably the, the kind of young guys that you started out with are now the kind of big legends today. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, some of them are gone. You yeah. know, they checked out. I mean, that's the problem. <laughs> Nobody knows their expiration date. Life, you know? life happens, yeah. yes. But, you know, um, Emily just brought up Jerry Gortz. She oh, just said yeah. She was just saying that, that she was reading through some of the old publications, and she really was impressed by the writing of, of Jerry Gortz. Jerry Gortz was also a big influence in my life, too. And her husband, who was a world-class surgeon who saved my son's life when he wow. was... Wow, oh, I didn't know really? that. Yeah. Wow, jeez. But Jerry Gowertz and her whole family were very good to me. And Jerry was, one, she was one of the original people to start the WJA. And she was extremely, uh, she was very influential in my life. Yeah, her writing was great. Emily just read a quote from one of her pieces and she just, we all decided she was definitely a badass. <laughs> oh yeah, she was. <laughs> so when I joined the industry, which was like in the 90s, early 90s, I remember George and Charlie were kind of this big kind of established team and duo and kind of everybody respected Charlie and everybody respected George. Was it, was it always kind of like that? How did that kind yeah, of... Yeah, it was. I mean, George came from uh, the Wall Street Journal or, mm -hmm. or the yeah. Washington, yeah. Washington Post. The Wall, he, Wall Street Journal. Journal. Wall Street Journal. He had an amazing track record and incredibly understated and incredibly stoic and... And, and a man who, again, I, I may have mentioned, just taught me the meaning of integrity when it comes to sales and dealing with getting those contracts. And, of course, I keep emphasizing Lee Lawrence because he really, um, well, when we started the show, it was, it was pretty amazing. But I'd just like to back up for a second yeah, and sure. tell you about uh, Martin Rappaport. When he started, it was a revolution against him. There were people who called me up because we put his picture on the cover of the magazine. And it was, I think, the, the early 80s. Or, and there were people that said, 
this is a disgrace. We're going to stop advertising. And of course, I didn't call anybody. I said, well, if you want to stop advertising, they were devastated by the fact that Martin Rappaport or anybody would come out with all the, the numbers for, uh, for diamonds. No, we'd always been in, in, the, in the dark. And it was, it was a unique time to be in the jewelry industry. Well, was there any other big commotions about articles that you remember that you had to deal with? There were... Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was one that, well, I, I don't know how much I want to put out there, but we you did an expose on the RJA, the Retail Jewels of America. Is that right? Yeah. What, was, and, what were you exposing? We were is, that, expo- is that JA? That, yeah, that's, that is that JA, is JA now, yeah. because they had 80 million, 40 million at that time, or just a huge treasury, and, and they had a lot of cash, and we were questioning, what's going on? Where's this money going? What are we doing with it? And there were several people who, and I remember the JA was a big advertiser, and they, they said, if you print this article, we are going to pull our advertising, and we're going to call all the people, and we're gonna, they're going to bag their advertising in JCK. And you know what George Holmes said? Too bad, so sad. Too bad, so sad. <laughs> Something like that. Except he was, so, he was so literate, this guy, you know. And so we printed it, and of course there was a lot of controversy at the time. We didn't have the show at the time, and people were furious with JCK. And some people said, "Hey, what's going on here?" So let's let's talk about the show. The show. Yeah. Oh, the show was. Nineteen ninety-two, right? Well, the birth or the, the the first show was ninety-two. And at the time, we were thinking about it. I mean, we got together, had a meeting that was the salespeople, and they said, we're going to ask you to go out into the marketplace and find out if JCK were to do a show, you know, ask some of your customers. And we went to the San Diego show in the summer of 91. And I asked Hugh Glenn, who was in the watch business, a real gentleman, I asked Raimondo Mastelloni Sr. And I asked David Strauss from Seiko. And they basically said, if JCK is going to do a show, we'll back you. If they put the same effort and integrity and so on, we'll sign up. That was huge. That's how the show started. I mean, and we had 400-something booths that we were planning. That's what was, that's what was budgeted for. We sold close to 1,000 booths. Hmm. Never in your wildest dreams did you expect, okay, this is going to be one of the biggest shows in the world. Absolutely not. I mean, we had 600-page show issues. It was, it was like walking around with a, with, a, with a telephone book. We had a 1,000-page show guide. I just don't even know how you did that. I mean, yeah. how, how much were you working? Or is it oh, like it 60, was, 80 hours a week? We, we worked, and, and, and we, never, we never got complacent about it. You know, as a matter of fact, at the show, we worked... F- I didn't go to sleep. I mean, we went to sleep at four o'clock in the morning and then, and then we're back on the, on the show floor by seven 30, you know, carrying around these walkie talkies that were ridiculous. <laughs> so was it fun? Oh, it was, <laughs> it was absolutely amazing fun. And everybody was, was happy. What did the opening of the show do for the magazine? It gave us amazing credibility. It gave us a worldwide truly a worldwide reputation. That we didn't have as a magazine. Exactly. The, it just enhanced our, our, our brand 
you know, what, wh- who is it that said a brand is what people talk about when they're in a in a room? I've heard Mark Smell yeah, just yeah, say yeah. that when it was, yeah. that was from the the conference, I think. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, when they're out of the room. Yeah. It made it easier to sell advertising. Yeah, it sure <laughs> did. Yeah. What people may not know is that in addition to helping create JCK Las Vegas, an industry institution, you help create another big industry institution. You. As Eddie Levion says many times, <laughs> you're the inspiration uh, for chocolate diamonds. It says, Bill Furman always brought some artisanal chocolates from a store nearby as a gift. He touted the high benefits of high-end chocolate and how it served to keep the heart healthy and was an aphrodisiac. Yeah, which I, that's true. I, yeah. I can't believe you... I'm just shocked you said such a thing. Um, uh, his passion and addiction to chocolate is infectious. And uh, when they started thinking about uh, what to do with Argyle Brown diamonds, they said chocolate diamonds. And that was, he gives you credit. Did you I, know every, that? Every time those commercials yeah, come on, I, I have to say you should that, get a royalty. No, I have to say that I'm, I'm, that's very humble of him. I mean, it did come out of a conversation. And I said, why call it champagne diamonds? Why call it anything except chocolate diamonds? Because when you, when you eat chocolate, it's like a sensual experience. It's a loving experience. You kind of close your eyes and, mm, you know, it's delicious. And, and that's the difference between s- describing a diamond that gives you a sensual, you know, warm feeling th- with chocolate. That was, that was the concept, basically. Any thoughts you want to give to, uh, you, I know you're still probably, you're in touch with a lot of your friends in the jewelry industry still. Any thoughts or any, you know, summing up the whole career at JCK, everything you've accomplished? No big deal. No, yeah, no pressure here. But, uh, uh, you know, any, just anything you want to say to people or you want people to know? I want to say that, that I'm very grateful for all the support and all the love that was given to me over 46 years. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor and engineer is Levi Sharp. If you liked what you'd heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK. Jewelry District.